0: Welcome to this podcast of Dr. Robert Wachter's keynote presentation at the Institute for Healthcare Improvement's 26th Annual National Forum on Quality Improvement in Healthcare. Dr. Wachter's presentation, 10 Things Every Hospital Needs to Know to Be Safe, was recorded live at the National Forum in Orlando, Florida, on December 10, 2014. We are offering this podcast as part of IHI's online audio talk show, WIHI. I'm Madge Kaplan, host and producer of WIHI and IHI's director of communications. Robert Wachter is professor and associate chair of the Department of Medicine at the University of California at San Francisco. There, he directs the 60 Physician Division of Hospital Medicine. He's the author of 250 articles and six books, coined the term hospitalist in 1996, and is generally considered the father of the hospitalist field, the fastest growing specialty in the history of modern medicine. In 2004, Dr. Wachter received the John M. Eisenberg Award, the nation's top honor in patient safety. He is currently completing a book on how computers are changing the practice of medicine, and that will be published in 2015. Dr. Wachter spoke for about 50 minutes and then took questions from the audience. If you'd like to view or download the slides he references, as well as a short video he played, you can find these items on IHI.org. We begin the podcast with Dr. Walker being introduced by IHI Executive Director, Frank Federico.
1: Thank you, everyone, and good day. Welcome to our session, 10 Things Every Hospital Needs to Know to Be Safe. Many of you are probably familiar with the IHI's free online audio talk show, WIHI, which airs biweekly and is offered as a podcast for later listening. Its host and producer, Madge Kaplan, who is also IHI's Director of Communication, comes to the forum with her media outreach hat on, where she's looking to identify strong content for future IHI programming. She's arranged with Dr. Walker to have his presentation today audiotaped, so that W I H I can feature it as a future spot podcast, which will go live on ihi.org by the end of next week. Madge will also moderate the discussion at the conclusion of our remarks. Since late 1990 or so, there has been a strong focus on improving patient safety. Our journey has taken us from not understanding the problem, to denying that the problem existed, to blaming others, to understanding systems thinking, working on changing culture, and to realizing that this is a difficult and necessary work. And we've also realized that we must engage all layers of an organization in order to be successful, and we must engage patients and families in order to improve safety. A quote from our speaker's book nicely summarizes our approach. The modern patient safety movement replaces the blame and shame game with an approach known as systems thinking. This paradigm allows allows us to understand the human condition, the fact that humans make mistakes, and concludes that safety depends on creating systems that anticipate errors and either prevent or catch them before they cause harm. Such an approach has been the cornerstone of safety. However, we have been slow to adopt it. Other high-risk industries have used this approach for a long time, and it's only been until recently that we've decided we can do this as well. We also discovered that we can learn from others. The AHRQ Web M&M series, edited by our speaker, offers wonderful insight into cases from which we can all learn. Our speaker today is Dr. Robert Wachter, Professor and Associate Chairman of the Department of Medicine at the University of California in San Francisco, where he holds the Lynn and Mark Benioff Endowed Chair in Hospital Medicine. He is also Chief of Hospital Medicine and Chief of the Medical Service at UCSF Medical Center. If you wonder where the term hospitalist came from, Dr. Wachter receives that credit. He is considered the academic leader of the fastest-growing specialty in the history of modern medicine, the hospitalist. He is also the author of over 250 articles and six books in the field of quality, safety, and health policy. His books include Understanding Patient Safety, Internal Bleeding, The Truth Behind America's Terrifying Epidemic of Medical Mistakes, Hospital Medicine, Making Healthcare Safer, a Critical Analysis of Patient Safety Practices, The Fragile Coalition, Science, Politics, and AIDS, and soon to be published in 2015, The Digital Doctor, Hope, Hype, and Harm at the Dawns of Medicine's Computer Age. He received one of the 2004 John M. Eisenberg Awards, the nation's top honor in patient safety and quality. He has been selected as one of the 50 most influential physician executives in the United States by modern Healthcare. for over the past seven years, the only academic physician to have received that distinction. He is nationally known and internationally recognized as a leader in the field of patient safety and quality improvement. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Robert Wachter.
2: Thank you, Frank. It is a uh, great pleasure and honor to be here. It's a fantastic conference and I've learned a ton. And uh, I have a difficult task uh, uh, because I've been asked by Frank and Maureen and the rest of the crew to talk about 10 things every hospital needs to know to be safe. And that's a difficult task because you've been hearing for the last several days about all sorts of things. So I don't want to be repetitive. And also uh, uh, that's a relatively short period of time to do that. So. Uh, This will be relatively brisk. Um, So here is my agenda in the next 45 or 50 minutes, and as Frank mentioned, at the end of our time, uh, Madge will come up and we'll have a conversation, and hopefully uh, you will participate in that. Uh, When I thought about 10 things that I wanted to talk to you about, I figured I would come up with some criteria, and my criteria are that they are interesting, uh, surprising, at least to me, and somewhat iconoclastic or even contrarian. Uh, I divided them up into four main categories. These are sort of four buckets uh, that I think help define some of the parameters of the safety movement. I'm going to talk first about some big picture issues uh, and thinking. I'm going to talk second about areas that fall within the broad category of the motivations of workers in healthcare and the workforce. Uh, Third, I'm going to talk about systems thinking. As Frank mentioned, systems thinking has been in some ways the cornerstone of the patient safety field and I'll talk about where that uh, works, but where that leaves some gaps. And fourth, I'm going to talk about some areas within the field of information technology, uh, partly because I think it's really important and fairly cutting edge, and partly because I spent the last year thinking about it and writing uh, the upcoming book that Frank mentioned. Uh, if you do the math, I want to be done with my section in 45 to 50 minutes, so 50 minutes divided by 10 topics. Uh, is uh, five minutes per topic, which means this will be uh, small plates, as they say in the restaurant business, or maybe the tapas of lectures. We're going to go fairly quickly and touch on areas, and I hope some of them are interesting and, uh, to you and, and stimulating as well. So let's get started. I'm going to start with uh, the big picture, sort of big areas in healthcare and and patient safety that I think are interesting, emerging, important, and in some ways represent paradigms that we have held some of which I think uh, deserve to be questioned slightly. Let me start with, this is very big picture, sort of where we are in the field of patient safety and more broadly in the fields of quality and improvement. These are medical students at my institution, the University of California, San Francisco. They are uh, brilliant. They're hungry to learn. They're incredibly excited. There are many uh, students here. Uh, I was speaking to them a little over a year ago And I don't know why I got in this mood, but I decided I wanted to shake them up. And I said to them, "Uh, you folks are entering a profession that is entirely different than the one I entered about 35 years ago, because you will be under absolutely relentless, unremitting pressure to figure out how to deliver healthcare that is safe, high quality, reliable, satisfying, and of the lowest possible cost. I really, I kind of used my most gravitas voice. I really wanted to kind of shake them out of any sense of complacency. And one of them raised his hand and he said, what exactly were you people trying to do? (laughs) So, uh, first of all, I think that's an absolutely brilliant question. Second of all, when we find ourselves, as we all do, uh, sort of shaken by the number of new requirements and pressures that we're all feeling... I want you to remember that medical student's question and realize that what is weird is that we didn't used to have those pressures. What's what's not weird is today where we're feeling under pressure to figure out how to deliver really good safe care and do it at a cost that doesn't bankrupt our country or or the world for that matter. Uh, The odd part is that we did not feel these pressures until recently. So why are we being pressured to change? You all know this. I sometimes give an hour lecture on this, but that red line here is designed to show an equation. The equation is the value equation you're all comfortable with. We know that we harm and kill many people. The IOM report that said the number was 44 to 98,000 deaths per year, the equivalent of a large jumbo jet going down a day, that really launched the patient safety field. Uh, This is Beth McGlynn, a researcher at Kaiser Permanente, who 11 years ago wrote in the New England Journal an article that said, when we know the right thing to do in American healthcare, we do that thing 54% of the time, slightly better than a coin flip. If you're a Six Sigma fan, that is 1.5 Sigma, a level of reliability that would put every business I know of out of business within a day or two. Think if FedEx got their package to you uh, 54% of the time. Uh, Tests for hospital budgets, are the patients pleased? HCAPs and other surveys asking patients about their experience, not to mention Yelp and all the other sources of, of information about patient experience, which now matter uh, for hospitals and clinics. Uh, Atul Gawande's really important article on the cost conundrum, really pointing out to the public the importance of variation, something uh, that Dartmouth had taught us over, over decades, uh, but I think this popularized the notion. So that's the numerator of the value equation care that is not safe unreliable not particularly satisfying uh, highly variable and the denominator of course is this famous uh, curve of costs by nation Uh, you don't have to see the denominator to know that as they say on Sesame Street one of these is not like the others the U.S. of course is spending 50 percent more than any other country without outcomes uh, commensurate with that those expenditures so in very shorthand language because you all know of this we're being pressured to change because we need to be pressured to change the care that we have delivered and the system that we have concocted does not reliably deliver high quality safe uh, and affordable care so the first insight the first thing that you need to know is that the world has changed and the, the world, I, in this regard, I mean the business case for safety, quality, and value which was non-existent when the IOM report on safety and then a year later on quality came out. If you were a hospital or a healthcare system CEO or board and you said, what is our business case to invest in and pick your favorite safety tool, improvement science, teamwork, training, computerization, whatever it is that you like, the business case to make that investment was zero. You were being a perfectly rational business person if you were a CEO or a board member, and you said, well, we have five million bucks left over, let's build a new OR, let's hire another neurosurgeon, and let us not invest in quality and safety. That's only 14 years ago. Today, Competitive pressure, accreditation pressure, transparency pressure, and payment changes, a lot of different sources of pressure, mean that that is no longer true. It is why the amount of interest in what you all do and what we all do has grown so much. I do not believe that the healthcare care system or its leaders have grown more ethical in the last 14 years. It would be nice to believe that. But I think what really has changed is the business case to do this work has grown uh, tremendously. The best estimate is within a few years, eight to 10% of Medicare payments will hinge on performance. Might not seem like a big deal, but first of all, there is not a hospital in the country that could survive an 8% Medicare pay cut for very long. And second of all, that number five years ago was zero. So it's gone from 0% to seven or 8% in a few years. Nobody thinks it's gonna stop there. Let's turn to number two. Remember, I told you this is tapas, so we're gonna go quickly. Number two. Uh, Teamwork matters, but so does leadership. And again, one of my criteria here was to be a little contrarian and shake things up a little bit. I believe deeply in the emphasis in the patient safety field on teamwork, interdisciplinary care, uh, tamping down hierarchies. It's been crucial. And I think it's been generally helpful, the work that we've done in improving teamwork. And I think you see evidence of that at at this meeting. Here's a quote from Atul Gawande, whenever I'm struggling for something smart to say, usually I just read Atul Gawande and quote him. Uh, And so here's a quote from Atul from a New Yorker article a few years ago that captures the importance of teamwork, I think, beautifully. Atul wrote, the core structure of medicine, how healthcare is organized and practiced, emerged in an era when doctors could hold all the key information patients needed in their heads and manage everything required themselves. We were craftsmen, we could set the fracture, spin the blood, plate the cultures, administer the anti-serum. The nature of knowledge lent itself to prizing autonomy, independence and self-sufficiency, and to designing medicine accordingly. That sounds right, that sounds like the culture of my life during my training. But Atul went on and wrote, but you can't hold all the information in your head any longer, and you can't master all the skills. No one person can work up a patient's back pain, run the immunoassay, do the physical therapy, protocol the MRI, and direct the treatment of the unexpected cancer found in the spine. I don't even know what it means to protocol the MRI. So that is the state of the universe. It's one of the core reasons why teamwork is so crucial. I think we've all come to recognize that medicine and healthcare is a team sport. No one person, no matter how smart or committed, can do this work independently. And there's actually good evidence, and you've heard some of this at this conference, that teamwork training actually works. And this is, I think, one of the most persuasive pieces of evidence from Neely, a study at the VA, which rolled out teamwork training, sort of aviation-style, crew resource management-style teamwork training, through the VA healthcare system over a series of years. And as she and her colleagues did that and studied it, they saw risk-adjusted mortality rates go down in the hospitals in which teamwork training had been applied and not go down in the hospitals in which it hadn't. And then when the training rolled through those hospitals, it went down in those hospitals as well. So pretty persuasive evidence, and there's other evidence, that says teamwork training and bringing teams together and have them work more uh, in, in, in a more harmonized fashion is a good thing to do. And I certainly believe that. Here's the, the contrarian part. I think there is a uh, pressure toward teamwork and a pressure toward no hierarchy at all, which is potentially concerning. And I just want to raise that point, because I do think it is on my list of things that people should think about as they design programs. So what I've done here is inspired in part by Atul's talk and by his book, which, by the way, is marvelous. Uh, I have written for you my advanced directive. And Atul said, you know, his brain could be in a jar and he would still want to stay alive. I, I haven't gone quite that far, but here's my advanced directive. One, I believe deeply in teamwork and collaboration. Two, that said, if I code before this talk ends, I'd like one of you, not all of you, to run my code. Please be sure it's one of you who knows what the hell you're doing. Now, I said that, by the way, number three does not imply that that's a doctor. It could very well be a nurse or a pharmacist or someone else. I think the key point here is it's not necessarily that the doctor should be ahead of the head of the team. It should be the most appropriate person. And I think there is a risk of lurching so strongly in the direction of no hierarchies, it's all teams, that we forget about the crucial role of leadership. I think this is one of those complex questions where there's a balance here. Certainly we needed to go more in the direction of teams than was traditional, but it's also important that we train and nurture leaders. And I've signed it in case uh, this act actually actually comes up. Okay, I want to switch to this. So those are sort of big picture areas. Second area, uh, motivations and the workforce. A couple of points I want to make. Uh, Here, uh, the answers may be nearby, and obviously there's no place like home. There's a tendency that we all have as we look for best practices to seek answers from some famous Midwest clinic, you know, which ones I'm talking about, or some marquee U.S. News & World Report top hospital. That's a natural tendency. These places are famous. They do amazing work. There, There are times where that's useful. But it's important to recognize that many answers can be found much closer to home, and I don't mean necessarily in your own state or region, I'm talking about in your building. And why is that important? Well, a few reasons. One is when you say, oh, this is what they do at, and name your favorite place, at Mayo, at Geisinger, at Virginia Mason, at Kaiser, at, uh, at Johns Hopkins. Here are the predictable comebacks. I'm sure you've heard these all before. They don't have homeless people there. Our patients are older. Not everybody's patients can be older, but our patients are older. Uh, They do big data there. That sounds really impressive. Nobody actually knows what that means, but it sounds pretty cool. Uh, They have private jets from Qatar landing there every day. Uh, We don't have their resources. They have 75 years of history of doing this. And the final one, try doing that with our medical staff. So you've heard all these before. They are completely predictable when you say let's look at this iconic place and figure out what they've done there and import it into our place with our people and our culture. Moreover, if you try to ask yourself what are those best hospitals, it's a mess. I've just listed here a partial list of the now ranking agencies that put out lists every year of America's top 10, 50, 100 hospitals. And in fact, Jordan Rowan in an article went through all of this and came out with the estimation that about 1,000 U.S. hospitals are now one of America's top 100 hospitals. I'm sure many of you are represented here in the audience. Uh, having been on the board of a community hospital, I can tell you that when you make one of these lists, it, it is papered over everything. It is uh, banners, it's newspapers, it's on every bus. And then when you don't make one of these lists, it's people saying, oh, the methodology is not very good. So this is, And it's just a completely natural response. Moreover, I think we've come to learn that culture and performance are quite local, and this is one of the more persuasive studies I've read. It's now a little bit old, but I think the results have have been supported over the years. This is a study by Peter Pronovost and Brian Sexton uh, in quality and safety in healthcare in 2005. What they did was looked at safety culture, safety climate in 100 different hospitals. They used a a well-validated survey and asked the clinicians and workers in those hospitals how, good, how many of you would describe safety culture as good in this hospital? And this is the curve, and you see here that some hospitals it wasn't very good. Forty percent of people said, yes, we have a good culture, and in other hospitals it was 75 percent. So there's a pretty decent-sized splay, uh, making the point that there probably are differences from institution to institution in culture. Then they did something extraordinarily important and clever. I want you to look at that one hospital, that black bar, which you see is in the lower third of all the hospitals in this set of 100 hospitals. On this curve are 49 clinical units in that one hospital. So now every column here represents a clinical unit. One is the ICU and one is the step-down unit 50 yards away and one is the ER and one is labor and delivery. And what I want to point out here is that the variation in safety culture is far greater within this hospital than it is across hospitals. So your hospital or your clinics or your healthcare system does not have a safety culture. Your ICU has a safety culture, and your medical ward has a completely different safety culture. And I think every time we look at data like this, whether it's it's performance improvement work or almost anything, it kind of looks like this. What's important about this is that the answers to many of the questions that you're struggling with probably can be found under your roof. And one of the advantages of that is, first of all, you don't have to travel to Rochester, Minnesota in the middle of the winter. But second of all, you take away all of those, uh, those excuses. Because you have the same patients, you have the same insurance, you have the same IT system, you have the same leadership. And so you can really disentangle some of those effects and say, well, it seems like these units are figuring this thing out and these units are not. What can we learn from the organizations, uh, the, the, the parts of our organization that are doing this well? I think that's really an important line of reasoning. And for me, was was a real epiphany in the way I think about improvement work. Number four, when it comes to motivating people, look beyond the money. Many health economists looked at health care, saw our problems in performance, everything you can name, uh, whether it's safety or, or, uh, or variations or costs, and they said all we need are more incentives. This is just another business like everything else. When a business doesn't perform well, you just have to tweak the incentives and, and, uh, and people will jump through the hoops. And of course, when people looked at health care and looked at the performance of the health care system, that was a natural thing to think and as now healthcare is being put through the paces trying to improve, paper performance is, of course, the rage, uh, whether it's at the level of the individual clinician or at the level of the healthcare organization. So here's what I think it's important to balance that enthusiasm for pay performance with something that many of you already know and some of, has been the discussion in some sessions in this meeting, which is that clinicians are motivated by more than dollars. And there's now a whole line of, of research and, and, and inquiry into this area, part of the whole behavioral economics work, and two very important books in this world, which if you haven't read, you should read at least one of them, Daniel Pink's Drive, Dan Ariely's Predictably Irrational. Dan Pink makes the point that humans are motivated by much more than money. They tend to be motivated by these three things, autonomy, mastery, and purpose. And virtually always those things as values trump money in what drives people to do better. And I think particularly in a helping profession like healthcare, I think that's proven to be true. Ariely makes his point by giving an example, which you may have heard. This is the Israeli daycare center example, and I I really like it. So the story he tells is of the Israeli daycare center, and what was happening at this daycare center was they were struggling because parents periodically would, you know, the kids were all supposed to be picked up by 5.30, six was drop dead time, kids have to be picked up. But a couple times a week, a parent gets stuck at work, the boss calls an emergency meeting, the parent doesn't show up till 6.30, and it's a disaster. It's a disaster because the daycare teacher is supposed to leave, some of them have kids of their own they have to get to, and one of them now has to stay behind with this straggling kid because the parent is late. And the board of the daycare center struggled with what they're going to do about this and they came up with a perfectly rational solution. The solution is we're going to fine people if they show up late. And the fine was the Israeli equivalent of about a dollar a minute. So now if you show up at 620, you owe us 20 bucks. Anybody want to hazard a guess as to what happened to the rate of late pickups? skyrocketed. And why would it skyrocket? What do, you, what do you think? It's cheap, right? It's like you're, you're playing tennis at 545 on a glorious day, and you say, you know, it's worth 20 bucks for me to stay out here another half hour. It's a perfectly natural response. So what they had done, and before that, by the way, parents did not want to show up late. They felt terrible when they showed up late. They know these teachers are wonderful people, and they're underpaid, and they were putting them through a hardship, but they were just stuck at work. But now what they had done was change what had been a social transaction into a market transaction. And when it's a market transaction, you just make a decision whether it's worth it. We do that all the time. So the Israeli daycare center board said, oh, that didn't work very well because the rate of late pickups really doubled or tripled. And so they took away the fine. What do you think happened to the rate of late pickups? Didn't budge. Did not budge. And Ariely writes in his book, when a social norm collides with a market norm, the social norm goes away for a long time. Money, as it turns out, is very often the most expensive way to motivate people. Social norms are not only cheaper, but often more effective as well. And so as we think about paper performance and various uh, uh, hoops that we're going to drive people to, to, to go through through with money, I think we have to think very carefully about that. There is evidence that pay performance is not working very well in healthcare. care. This is the probably most persuasive evidence, this is Medicare's paper performance program's first few years where they launched Hospital Compare, so you had publicly available data, so essentially a test of transparency, and then a select group of premier hospitals, some of whom are represented here, also participated in a Medicare P4P experiment where in addition to having their data publicly reported, they also got some bucks if they did better. The curve in red is, and the performance here is of on core measures, basically, The curve in red is all American hospitals that were now having their data publicly reported. And what I want you to notice there is that public reporting worked pretty well. People responded to just having their data out there on the web and did better on all of these measures. The curve in blue is those hospitals that in addition to having their data publicly reported were also part of the P4P experiment. And what I want you to see, which is replicated in a lot of studies of this issue, is that in the first couple of years, people do jump a little higher and a little run a little faster because of the money, but the difference is trivial. The difference here is a percentage point or two. By the time year three or four rolls around, there's no difference between these curves. All right, before you completely dispaper performance, and I think we have to be careful about political correctness here because I think all of us like the idea that we're not motivated by money. I think there's something about it that's very sort of comforting. So before we completely diss it, it's worth reflecting on a few caveats. One is I've given you more evidence against it. There, is, there are some studies, particularly from the UK, that are more supportive of it. So I think right now it's fair to say it's a mixed bag. Some interpret the negative studies like the one I just showed you as saying they didn't get it right. That, in fact, the money involved was not enough. And I think before pay performance goes away, we will see much more exuberant pay performance. We'll see more money at stake. I don't think a few studies like that one I showed you are going to be enough evidence for people to pull the plug on the concept. It's important when you think about P4P to to, to, to recognize there are many layers you could do pay performance. So, for example, Medicare may say, we're not going to do pay performance, we're just gonna put data out there, and your organization may say, we're gonna create some bonuses to try to motivate people internally. So it's not just a question of what Medicare or Aetna or United does, it's also a question of what individual delivery organizations choose to do. And I think my bottom line on this is that good leaders and good policy makers are thoughtful but not religious about this. If you think pay for performance is horrible, and you should never use it, I think you're wrong. If you think pay performance is wonderful and you should always use it, I think you're wrong. I think the right answer is going to be somewhere in between. It's going to be a thoughtful mix. And a lot of it will depend on the local culture of the organization, which means it's more attractive, to me at least, that organizations play with this than that Medicare plays with this, because it has no ability to reflect those individual differences. Third area I want to talk about is the system. And as, as Frank mentioned in the introduction, I think the, in some ways the defining clarion call of our field for the last 15 years has been it's all about the system. And here's Jim Reason's famous Swiss cheese model. Remember in the early days of patient safety talking about this and asking audiences who many of you have heard of this and no one raised their hand. And now pretty much everybody is familiar with this idea that errors in complex organizations involve human glitches and it's part of our humanness. But what they really involve is layers of protection that the organizations have built in that failed, uh, thus the Swiss cheese analogy, and then some bad karma. It's then just a particular day where all the holes align, the errors made it through and caused harm, and the reason this is so useful is it takes our minds away from the instinctive response which is to focus on who blew it or how could I blow it and we need to, to fire them or sue them or, or shame them or something and toward a much more productive area which is thinking about those layers of Swiss cheese, shrinking the holes and creating as much overlap as possible so the holes never align. This has been extraordinarily important. And I and I also add here, politically correct, and I mean that in both senses of the word. I mean politically correct because it's very attractive and sort of a, a nice thing to say uh and rather than finger pointing, but also politically astute. And by that I mean it was very important in two thousand uh when the when the IOM report came out uh to get doctors on board. And if you went to doctors and you said, we're going to talk about medical mistakes now, we want to have sort of a productive conversation about what we can learn from medical mistakes. When you say to a doctor, a medical mistake, there's a little inkblot test. And all that comes out is malpractice, malpractice, malpractice. That's all they can think about. And so it would have been a conversation ender. Instead, what we came out with in 2000 was, we're going to talk about medical mistakes and it's not your fault. You're a good doctor, you're a good nurse, it's not your fault. It is the system, and we're going to work on the system. And I think that was crucial in getting the engagement, I think particularly of doctors, which has been absolutely necessary in moving the field forward. But I think there is a risk here, in the same way that I talked about teamwork, there's a risk here of forgetting that this is a complex and nuanced issue. And I want to talk about a couple of areas where I think the the sort of uh, narrow focus on systems has missed some important... Uh, areas where I think we've given it short trip. One I'm not going to talk about very much, which is diagnostic errors. It's been a subject that's come up a lot in the last few years, including here. Systems probably are important in mitigating or preventing some diagnostic errors, but it's also important that doctors know stuff. And at least for the foreseeable future, until computers completely take over diagnostic reasoning, for now, at least as far as we can tell, it is important that your doctor actually knows, has a decent knowledge base and basic clinical reasoning skills. And and at, at least for now, that's not going to be replaced by a really good system. Maybe eventually it will. At least my impression, and I spent a day with the IBM Watson people, my impression is that beating The Jeopardy champions is not the same as being a world-class diagnostician. So I think this is an area where our focus on systems has distracted us from some elements that really involve individual virtuosity. The second area, though, I want to spend a minute on is on technical skills. And what I want to do is show you a video. It'll take about four minutes. Uh, Any of you that have the propensity to get grossed out being inside someone's belly uh, pick up your iPhone or pick up your newspaper or do something for four minutes because we 're going deep inside someone 's belly. This is a study that was done uh, published in the New England Journal last year by John Berkmeyer and his colleagues Johns now at Dartmouth. he was at Michigan at the time it 's a brilliant brilliant study it 's one of my favorite studies of all time. What they did was they looked at a surgery called a jejuno-jejunostomy. This is basically a bypass an intestinal bypass surgery for obesity one of the bariatric kind of bariatric surgeries the idea is you take the your small intestine which is 20 or 30 feet long you take two loops of bowel you stick them next to each other tie them together and then create a bypass create an opening between those two loops of bowel so the food as it's sloshing through bypasses about 10 feet of intestine and there's less chance for absorption and it's a good way to lose weight Turns out this is a technically very difficult surgery. It's done laparoscopically. So pulling these loops of bowel together, suturing them together, creating this opening between them, uh, all of that is done through little peepholes with little hand sticks. It's pretty tough. I'm not a surgeon, but it seems pretty tough to me. Here's what John and his colleagues did. They said to get bariatric surgeons in Michigan, send us a videotape of your favorite example of your surgery, a day where you, were, you hadn't had an argument with your kid. You'd had your tall mocha in the morning. You were good. Your favorite example, send it to us, and we'll analyze That's all they said. So they did that, and they got, they got hundreds of videotapes from the surgeons. They had 10 peer surgeons review each videotapes and come up with a ranking about proficiency, technical proficiency, smoothness, exposure, could you see the things you wanted to see, steadiness, all those sort of things. And it turned out there was a pretty big splay in technical proficiency. The scale was one through five, five was spectacular, one was terrible, three was middle. The top 25 percentile surgeons had an average score of about 4.3, really good. The lowest 25th percentile surgeons had an average score of 2.7. So looking at these videotapes, these peer surgeons could see real differences in technical proficiency then here's where the magic of the study came in then they looked at the outcomes of the patients of these surgeons and they looked at readmission rates return to er rates infection rates and mortality rates and it turned out if you could only know one thing about your surgeon before deciding which surgeon to choose for that surgery you would want to know their score on this videotape the score trumped years of training where you train whether you publish in a famous academic place or a community place it trumped all of those this is what you would want to know of course there's no patient that knows that but this is what you would want to know number of surgeries had some was close in terms of another thing you'd want to know so practice does make perfect but this would be the most dominant thing that you would want to know so really important and as far as we can tell for now you being a 4.3 versus you being a 2.7 is more a manifestation of the surgeon's individual technical skills and proficiency and training than it is anything about how well the system is organized, teamwork, and so forth. Okay, so that's the preface. Uh, Here comes the, the video. If we can turn the lights down a little bit and turn the video up, and again, if you're grossed out, look elsewhere.
3: In this video from a highly rated surgeon, one can see that the surgeon's movements are fluid and seamless. Even instrument changes occur with minimal disruption to the operative flow. The bowel is grasped deliberately but gently and without causing injury. There is no awkwardness and very little wasted motion.
2: Yeah, look how each movement is meaningful.
3: Throughout each step the field is clearly visible. When setting up the bowel anastomosis or connection, the bowel limbs are aligned in such a way as to make the operation appear easy.
2: So the surgeon has to get this gizmo with the two limbs into the two limbs of the bowel and then fuse them together. It's really tricky. This is the correct position for suturing. That's where you want the needle at the time.
3: Even during freehand suturing, which is a difficult task, the needle is maintained in the correct position, and the bites are precise and accurate. One stitch flows seamlessly to the next. With regard to technical proficiency, there is little to criticize in this video. In this video from a lower-rated surgeon, several problem areas become apparent. When compared to the first video, the tissue is handled more roughly, and as the video progresses, one can see several small injuries to the bowel wall. In addition, with each step there are many more repetitive and ineffective motions as the surgeon tries to obtain exposure or set up the stapler. Here, the bowel is not well aligned with the stapler, making it difficult to place into the lumen of the bowel.
2: Remember how beautifully those two two pieces of bowel were next to each other in the other person.
3: Furthermore, visualization of the operative field is impaired during much of the procedure, due in part, at least, to inadequate retraction or poor tissue alignment.
2: Remember the correct position of the needle during suturing. It is not this.
3: Finally, instrument handling appears awkward, especially during suturing of the bowel. There are several missteps during this part.
2: Okay, Uh, we have the lights back up a tiny bit. Um, How many of you, if you knew that number two was going to be your surgeon today, would cancel your surgery? No patient knows that. I don't know that as an internist referring my patient to a surgeon. So there are parts of performance that really are still individual. We have to get at that and make sure that we're not sort of masquerading and disguising a lot of mischief when we talk about it's all about the system. There are uh, individual still matters in certain areas, and I think this is a vivid demonstration of that. Uh, Sixth point. Need to balance, no blame and accountability. I've written a lot about this. Let me just highlight a couple of key points. I've already mentioned the system approach was crucial. We now know that most errors are slips. They're expected. Humans will do this. We can only make them better, not by admonishing people to be more careful, but by improving systems, and that's things like checklists and IT and standardization. But here's why I started writing about this four or five years ago. My brain started hurting, because I was trying to hold in one not very big brain, these two ideas that, all right, it's all about no blame, but also we have to be accountable. And when you sort of try to morph those things together, it doesn't quite make sense. And I think we've all struggled with that in the safety field. Jim Reason, who really who invented the Swiss cheese model and has seen as the father of systems thinking, I think uh, people don't, don't realize that he actually understood this tension and wrote about it in the early days. In his seminal book called Managing the Risks of Organizational Accidents, Reason wrote, a no-blame culture is neither feasible nor desirable. A small proportion of unsafe acts are egregious and warrant sanctions, severe ones in some cases. A blanket amnesty on all unsafe acts would lack credibility in the eyes of the workforce. More importantly, it would be seen to oppose natural justice. What is needed is a just culture and atmosphere of trust in which people are encouraged, even rewarded for providing essential safety information, but in which they are also clear about where the line must be drawn between acceptable and unacceptable behavior. I think we lost sight of this. Eventually we came out with the just culture idea and and began to promote it, but we lost sight of this. We were so enthusiastic about systems thinking that I think there is a tendency to say, oh, it's all the system, it's never about the person. My favorite example here is hand hygiene where, as you know, typical hand hygiene rates 10 years ago were abysmal. We've all worked on this very much. Hand hygiene rates in most places are far better. But many hospitals have their hand hygiene rates at 60-ish percent, and they're stuck. Well, I'll go to hospitals like this periodically, and I'll say, what are you doing to improve your hand hygiene? And they said, oh, we're approaching this as a systems problem. I said, really, like what? And then I walk around, and there's a gel dispenser every two feet, And on every wall is a picture of a clinical leader cleaning his or her hands, looking like they're having a party. And on every computer screensaver is some nasty, pussy wound. And to me, the system actually looks pretty good. And I have to say that when they say a 60% hand hygiene rate is a system's problem, my BS detector goes off. Because it's not. At some point, the system is good enough, and it's an accountability problem. It is a problem that you are not, there's no... There's no stakes for the individual to follow these rules, and I think we have to be more thoughtful and actually a little tougher in areas like this. This is an article I wrote with Peter Pronovost a few years ago when we wrote, no blame is not a moral imperative, even if it seems that way to providers. It most definitely does not to patients. Rather, it's a tactic to achieve ends for which we will all be held accountable. And I think this is one of the things we have to really grapple with to get that balance uh, right. I don't think we've gotten it right just yet. The last uh, 10 minutes or so, I want to talk about IT-related areas, and as I mentioned, Frank mentioned, I've spent the last year writing a, a book about this whose subtitle is Hope, Hype, and Harm at the Dawn of Medicine's Computer Age, because that's what I was feeling, that certainly there's great hope, there's unbelievable hype, and we've actually seen some impressive cases of harm from computer systems that are glitchy and haven't thought about some of the human interface issues. So I'm gonna talk about a few key areas that I've discovered in my research here. First of all, let's start with the basic one. I think we were ruined by Apple. I think we came to believe that because we can pull out our you know, our, our iPhone or our iPad and just download an app and make plane reservations and make restaurant reservations and it's seamless and you don't have to read the manual, that healthcare would be just as similarly uh, easy and maybe if Apple had done it for us, it would have been, uh, but it's not, and we all, we all know that. So I think healthcare IT is getting better, but it actually feels like it's getting worse because when juxtaposed against how good consumer IT is, it feels like it's even falling further and further behind. The early glowing studies of IT were really from a few very distinct, unusual organizations that built their own systems, not from all of the rest of us that are buying the Epics and Cerners and McKessons and you name it of the world. And we've seen lots of unforeseen consequences, lots of, in some ways, the fastest-growing category of errors in healthcare are IT-related errors. That's not to say that we should pull out our computers or that I've become a Luddite. There's no question in my mind that my hospital is safer since we computerized than before, but it is to say it's harder than it looks and there are consequences that we now have to deal with. Ron Heif has, has talked about what he calls adaptive versus technical problems. Technical problems are like baking a cake, there's a recipe, you just do it and it all works. Adaptive problems are problems that require people themselves to change. And adaptive problems, the people are the problem and the people are the solution. And leadership is about mobilizing and engaging them rather than trying to anesthetize them so you can go off and solve it on your own. I think we mistakenly treated computerization of healthcare as a technical problem Put the box in, and you know, the box arrives from Amazon, and you open it up and turn, turn it on, and it fixes everything. This is an adaptive problem. It's the mother of all adaptive problems. And we've not treated it that way, and until we do, we will not get it right. Second point around computerization, I want to spend a moment on, de-skilling. This is the cockpit of a modern Boeing or Airbus. You may know 30 years ago, there were three people in the cockpit. It was that complicated, the the maps were so tricky, the navigation was so tough. There was a pilot, a co-pilot, and a flight engineer about 20, 25 years ago. They said, we don't really need three people, let's just go to two. And there's a saying in aviation that in the future there may be two living beings in the uh, cockpit, but it will be a pilot and a dog. The pilot is there to keep the dog company. The dog is there to bite the pilot if he tries to touch the controls. Maybe. But then we have cases like this. This is the crash of Air France 447. You may know about this. Uh, this is the, the plane that went off the coast of Brazil, down off the coast of Brazil about five years ago. And the story very briefly was a little gizmo on the outside of this plane called the Pateau tube froze. And when it froze, all the information that flowed from that, that gizmo froze up on the dashboard, including not only the airspeed, but a lot of other information that was calculated from the airspeed. The autopilot clicked off. The average pilot, by the way, on an eight-hour flight flies the plane for between two and three minutes. The rest of it's all autopilot. The autopilot clicked off, and a young Air France pilot now flew found himself flying the plane that, in the words of Sully Sullenberger, when I interviewed him, the pilot who landed on the Hudson, he said he was flying a plane that he was not familiar with, namely a plane where the automation wasn't working. And the plane was stalling, and the alarms were going off, and the voice, the computer voice, was saying, stalling, stalling, stalling. Now, if my plane was stalling in the middle of a storm and pitch black, and I was hurtling toward the Atlantic Ocean with 300 people behind me, I would have done, I would have pulled up the nose, because it says, stalling, stalling, stalling. That's exactly what this young pilot did. It turns out to be precisely wrong. The right thing to do when a plane is in an aerodynamic stall is to face it, it down, to pick up speed, to pull out of it. He didn't know that, at least in the moment. He wasn't trained to do that, and everyone on the plane died. So a very good book that came out a few months ago called The Glass Cage, and Nick Carr writes, how do you measure the expense of an erosion of effort and engagement or a waning of agency and autonomy or a subtle deterioration of skill you can't? Those are the kinds of shadowy, and tangible things that are, we rarely appreciate until after they're gone. And I think aviation is in the middle of a lot of angst now about how we deal with this issue of de-skilling as the computers take over more and more of the work. Luckily in healthcare, our computers still stink, and so we're not at risk of this just yet, but eventually we will be. As the computers get better, we're gonna have to be very thoughtful about getting this balance right. Number eight, alert fatigue. You all know about it. I just spent a minute on, on it. It's come up as an issue in this conference already. In a month at UCSF, UCSF Medical Center, 600-bed medical center where I work, we have 70 ICU beds. In a month, anyone want to hazard a guess as to how many alerts are thrown off, not by the computer or the respirator or the bed alarm, just that cardiac monitor that is EKG, oxygen saturation, heart rate, uh, respiratory rate, and uh, O2 sat. All right, any any guesses in a month, 70 beds? What do you think? 18,000. All right, any other? 50,000. Okay, good. 2.5 million. 2.5 million alerts are thrown off by this one monitor in a month across 70 ICU beds. Unbelievable. There's one audible alert. Not all of them are audible. We have one audible alert every seven minutes. Uh, Barbara Drew, who did this study, said told me one day she was interviewing a nurse by the bedside, an alert was going off, and her alarm was going off every five to seven minutes. It was like... Uh, like hand grenades on a beach at Normandy. And she said to the nurse, with all this, what would get you scared that the patient, something terrible was going on with the patient? And the nurse said, silence. That's pretty scary. I spent a day at Boeing uh, watching how they did cockpit IT design. And what was remarkable was the number of alerts that they have Uh, is very, very small because they're incredibly thoughtful about it. They know that every unnecessary alert makes it less likely you'll pay attention to the next one. The alerts are also graded. In my system, the alert for you're about to give a 40-fold overdose looks the same as the alert for you shouldn't give this medicine with grapefruit juice. In Boeing's cockpit, the alert for the plane is falling out of the sky, you better do something this second, is very different than the alert for a lower-level item where they say the pilot needs to know, but you don't have to do anything this second. And I said, what's an example of one of those low-level alerts? You know, pilot needs to know, but you don't have to do anything this second. They said, oh, the engine's on fire. I said, are you kidding me? That's a low-level alert? That's how thoughtful they are about these alerts. couple last points. When I was a medical student at the University of Pennsylvania, the center of the hospital was the chest reading room. And this guy, uh, whose name is Wally Miller, the late Wally Miller, was an extraordinary teacher. And we would go down every day, like cars going through a car wash, to present our cases to Wally. And those of you who are older physicians will remember this. You'd sit down in the chest room, he'd pull up the, the x-ray on the alternator, it looks like a, that, that thing in your, in your dry cleaner, stop the x-ray, it would be lit up, you'd talk about the case. It was not only this extraordinary interchange between the frontline clinicians and the radiologists, but it was also the opportunity we had each day for sense-making, to stop everything, think hard about what's going on. Well, 15 years ago, and 10 to 15 years before the rest of medicine, radiology went digital because the economics of printing out 150 images from a CAT scan no longer worked. Radiology went digital. About five minutes later, people stopped going down to radiology for rounds. Nobody thought about that. Nobody wrote about it. Nobody predicted it. It just happened. Why? Because we went down to radiology. We thought we were going down for this interchange, but partly we went down because of the forcing function of the film. There was only one place the film lived and it lived in radiology world. Once radiology went digital, the film was ubiquitous. It was no longer even called the film. It was the image. You could see it anywhere. One of the inventors of digital radiology is a radiologist at University of Chicago. His name is Paul Chang. He's a radiologist and an informatician. Paul Chang's father, Uh, was a radiologist as well. well. And when when your kid invents a whole field of of a profession that you're in, you'd think your father would be incredibly proud of you. Paul Chang's dad calls him the man who ruined radiology. Because the radiologists are incredibly angsty about this, that nobody comes to visit them anymore because they don't have to. What I think I've come to learn here is that digital radiology is the canary in the coal mine. Because the digitization of the thing, in this case the film, Creates the opportunity for, as they love to say in Silicon Valley, infinite scalability. It can be anywhere. Social relationships and communication patterns that depended on gathering around the thing, like the film, will wither. Power relationships mediated by who controls the thing will be renegotiated. It's partially the source of the radiologist's angst. And here's the big question. What happens when the thing isn't the film anymore, it's the medical record? And let me show you what that looks like. This is the residence room at UCSF. It's a lovely room. It's got a beautiful view of the Golden Gate Bridge. It's, and the residents love hanging out there. This is where they do all their work. The nanosecond that they're done seeing their patients, they flee the ward and they go to the, to the residence room to do their computer work and hang out with each other. I'm the chief of the medical service. That is what the medical service looks like. There, there may be tumbleweeds going through there eventually. The nurses are still there, but the doctors are gone. So all of the effort we've put in over the last several years to improve teamwork and collaboration has gotten uh, essentially tossed asunder because we're no longer in the same space because we don't have to be, in the old days we had to be there to hang around by the nurse's station because that's where the paper chart was. We have to begin giving this some thought about the implications and impacts of digitization of the thing and in particular the chart. Last point I want to make. Medicine is a deeply human endeavor. This is Abraham Verghese, the spectacular writer and and Stanford uh, internist. And this is Abraham's very important article from the New England Journal in 2008, where he coined the term the eye patient. He said the patient is still the center, but more as an icon for another entity clothed in binary garments, the eye patient. Often ER personnel have scanned, tested, and diagnosed so that interns meet a fully formed eye patient long before they meet the real patient. The eye patients' blood counts and emanations are tracked and trended like a Dow Jones index, and pop-up flags remind caregivers to feed or bleed. Eye patients are handily discussed or card-flipped in the team's conference room, while the real patients keep the beds warm and ensure that the folders bearing their names stay alive on the computer. This is the state of modern medicine. I think we have to think very deeply about it they say a picture is worth a thousand words this is a seven-year-old girl who went to see her pediatrician a few years ago and wrote and, and and drew this very charming enchanting crayon drawing of her recollection of visiting her pediatrician there she is in the middle her mother and sister are next to her and there in the corner is the doctor with his back to her paying more attention to the computer than he is to her i came home about a year and a half ago and said to my wife you know honey guess what the fastest growing profession in medicine is? She said, what? And I said, scribes. I said, pre-medical students or paramedics hired to feed the computer so the doctor and the patient can look each other in the eye again. And I said, only in medicine could we figure out a way to computerize. Every other industry computerizes and lays off tons of people. Only in medicine could we figure out a way to computerize and add FTEs. It is our particular brilliance. Uh, My wife writes for the New York Times, and so that is where this article came from, you may have seen six or eight months ago uh, from, that, from that conversation. So I want to end with, uh, with one final thought about medicine, humanity, and, and computerization. Uh, this is actually the very end of my book. It'll be a, take a couple of minutes, but uh, just to leave you with the idea of as important as computerization is, it is Im- crucial that we not lose sight of what we're really here to do. Uh, it concerns a patient I took care of in the ICU at UCSF a few years ago. We'll call him Mr. Gordon. It's a patient with widely metastatic cancer who was clearly on a path toward dying, sort of thinking about a tools talk yesterday. Layered on top of the challenge of talking to him and his family about his situation was the fact that his family members were not getting along. Those of you who are clinicians know these kinds of circumstances. So let me uh, read just the ending. As Mr. Gordon drifted in and out of consciousness, I sat down with his family in a conference room just outside the ICU. The family tension suffused the room with a heavy air, the smog of longstanding resentments. I described the clinical situation. I told them how it was that we were sure that Mr. Gordon was dying. I gave them my assessment that ongoing aggressive care would be futile and inhumane. I recounted my consultations with the ICU specialists, the oncologists, and the palliative care team, all of whom endorsed my prognosis and approach. I told them that I understood their desire to keep Mr. Gordon alive, but that I believed the time had come to stop trying. After talking for a while, the family members began to describe some happy memories of their time with Mr. Gordon and recalled his attitudes about end-of-life care. It became clear he would not have wanted aggressive care at this stage. I could feel the family members gradually casting aside their grievances, if only temporarily, as they coalesced around Mr. Gordon's interests. Their questions answered, I left the room and returned to the ICU. A few moments later, Mr. Gordon's son, holding back tears, found me in the ICU and told me the family had decided it was time to allow his dad to die peacefully. I replied that I understood how wrenching this decision was, but that it was the right one, one I would make for one of my own parents. He went back to the waiting room to rejoin his family. I entered Mr. Gordon's room and informed the nurse that we would be switching from our current full-court press to comfort care. I asked him to turn down the oxygen on the ventilator, to remove all the IVs except the one for morphine, and to bring some chairs in the room to allow the family to be at Mr. Gordon's bedside during his final minutes. I walked out to the waiting room to inform the family the time had come, and then escorted them in to see Mr. Gordon one last time. They entered the room one by one. The two siblings embraced. The son and son-in-law nodded at each other, an act I interpreted as a momentary truce and all four took seats surrounding the patient's bed. Mr. Gordon lay still, now unconscious from his morphine drip. The stage was set, but then I noticed a problem. In his haste to discontinue the various tubes and treatments, the nurse had forgotten to disconnect the bedside cardiac monitor, which continued to flicker a few feet above Mr. Gordon's head. And so it was that at one of life's most profound moments, a moment nearly impossible in its mystery and poignancy, a moment paradoxically rich with promise and ineffable sadness. All four family members' eyes were raised, not searching for truth or for God, but watching little squiggles, each the electronic signature of a heartbeat, march across a rectangular screen. Mr. Gordon's son was seated closest to the monitor. I put my hand on his shoulder. Speaking to all of them, I said, Your dad is comfortable and I'm so glad you could all be here with him. I'm sure he is too. But, and I pointed to the cardiac monitor, there is absolutely nothing on this screen that matters. And I pressed the off button. As the screen went to black, the family members shared a look of shock, then clarity, and then, what was it? Acceptance, warmth, gratitude, transcendence, maybe even love. After a moment of gathering themselves, each turned to Mr. Gordon, squeezed his hands, stroked his arm, touched his cheek. The scene was pure, peaceful, and in a way that's hard to describe, quite beautiful. And then he died. Thank you very much for your attention. Thank you. I, I think Madge is going to come up, and we will have a chat. Okay, we can go
0: uh, hang out there. Good. Yeah. All right. All right, thank you. I think that's for you if you want some. Great, thanks. Okay, terrific. Well... Thank you so much uh, for your remarks. Uh, you really, it was kind of a very interesting safety walk around and some great food for thought. And it's my sincere pleasure to have this opportunity to talk to Dr. Walker with all of you. And frankly, I'm going to be turning things over to the audience for your questions. Beth is out there with a roving mic. so. I'm sure you've all been thinking of some things uh, while, Do- while Dr. Walker has been speaking, so don't be shy at all. I want to start off with um, building, uh, obviously, on some of the things you talked about. Obviously, as you reminded us, healthcare is in the midst of this enormous digital revolution right now, uh, computerization of all sorts of information, the technology, uh, et cetera. And um, I'm wondering whether you think the efforts, um, particularly by the federal government right now, have been helpful. Um, because one of the things that's happened in the last several years is things have really accelerated due to meaningful use and other
2: incentive programs. Right.
0: Has that been helpful?
2: Uh, I, I, I'd say yes, uh, but there's a danger there. And here's the yes the yes is I believe that healthcare IT was a market failure. A market failure means the market was not producing a good that people actually should want and would benefit from. And why do I say it was a market failure? Because in 2008, the, uh, the percentage of hospitals and doctors' offices that were computerized was 10%. And uh, you, know, you did not need federal help for Walmart or United Airlines to computerize, but clearly to my mind, healthcare was not being computerized because of the weird incentives and it's a pain to do and all sorts of stuff. And, uh, and so the federal government created an office to promote computerization four years earlier. Not much was happening. And then the economy imploded. And there was this $700 billion stimulus package. And what they were going to do was fund, quote, shovel-ready projects. And then somebody smart came in and said, I have a shovel-ready project. It's not a bridge. It's not a road. It's computerizing American healthcare." They dove into that money pile, found $30 billion dollars. I believe that was a smart thing to do, because that $30 billion has led to an increase in commuterization from 10% to 70% in both hospitals and doctors' offices. Here's the downside. The downside is, in doing that, the feds quite logically said, we can't just give out $30 billion. That's a scandal waiting to happen. We need to create a set of rules around, we'll give you the money if your computer system does X and Y. Now, the problem is having the federal government deeply involved in the minutia of what your computer system does and doesn't do is problematic. And in the beginning, it was okay. But my sense, and certainly the sense I got from a lot of interviews, ranging from policy experts to frontline doctors trying to do their work, was that the degree of sort of in the weedsness of the rules, which are called meaningful use, is such that it has become a distraction All of the vendors, they have to focus almost like a laser on meeting those requirements and away from other things that I think ultimately are more important. So my hope is that the federal government declares victory, says this was a successful program, and then begins to pull back markedly and the market begins to take over in a way it does with consumer IT. We don't need federal intervention to tell Apple to make a better product. It just does.
0: To what extent do you feel in the healthcare environment right now that uh, what's the evidence you see of some of the de-skilling consequences, both in terms of safety and the human interaction? And are we maybe at a, a kind of a learning curve and we're going to kind of right-size this? In some That's sense? a great
2: question. I think the, the, the evidence of de-skilling in the, in the clinician-patient interaction, it's very important that we not romanticize how terrific we were about it in the old days. Because we weren't, I, mean, I think it's fair to say there have been clinicians, doctors, nurses, and others who were wonderful with patients in the paper era and ones who were terrible. And there are clinicians and others who are wonderful with patients in the digital era and are terrible. I think the difference is the computer creates another speed bump, another obstacle that we've not yet negotiated. When we had paper, we sort of figured out how to do the charting and the scribbling. By the way, it was scribbling and nobody could read it. But to do it while we still created the sense for the patient that we cared about them more than what was on the page. The computer really conspires against that because it is just a relentless taskmaster and it creates an environment where we can be asked to document all sorts of stuff for quality measurement, for billing, and for a hundred other things that have really nothing to do with the, the patient's problems. And so it's not so matter in that regard, de-skilling, it's just that we've not yet learned a new set of skills. And I don't think it's all clinician skills. It's the systems have to be better. It's the ergonomics of it have to be better. We have to get better at voice recognition. All that kind of stuff has to happen. As I said, the other parts of de-skilling, I gave that more as a cautionary note because I don't think we're at the stage yet that the computers have taken over so much of our work that we have sort of resigned to it the way I think they really have in aviation. So I think it really is a cautionary note. But I would add one area. And about a quarter of my book is the recounting of a single case at my institution where we gave a kid a 40-fold overdose of a common antibiotic. The correct dose was one pill. We gave 40. And I won't go through, there's not enough time to go through all the details, but one of the final legs in that race was a nurse looking at an order for 40 pills to a kid and saying, this is really weird. But I know to get to me, it had to go through a doctor, go through a pharmacist, go through a robot, and I'm going to check to be sure it's right. And the way she checked to be sure it was right was she went to the barcode, and she scanned it. And she scanned pill number one, and you know what the barcode machine said? It said, that's not the right dose, I need to see 39 more. Because at that stage of the medication safety process, the barcodes machine is to basically defend the order, to be sure the nurse gives the right dose to the right patient. And that was enough for her to say, okay, I guess it's right. It would be like seeing a sign on the highway that said speed limit 2,500 miles an hour and saying, okay, I guess I can drive pretty fast here. (laughs) I've been living in Boston for six months, but not even they do that. So it's... uh, I think that's what I worry about—the sort of overtrust in automation—and that's going to get worse as the computers get better.
0: Okay, thank you very much. All right, I'm not here to dominate. Question at the back, at the back. go for it.
2: I'm, I'm going to walk up a little bit. Thanks very much. I thought you had some great insights, Dr. Walker. Thank you. I'm really curious if you think of the what can CMS or Medicare do to actually drive performance improvement? As you know, uh, many of those uh, U.S. News and World Report top hospitals also incurred the hack penalty. So I think that's a perfectly good example of something. It probably saved Medicare money, certainly didn't drive performance at my hospital or probably yours. It just uh, made us feel a little bad about ourselves. Do you think that there are meaningful programs that CMS can, can put in place to help us really get better? You know, I, that's, such a, that's such a hard question. I've spent enough time with Medicare policymakers to know that these are smart, good people trying their best to get it right in a really tricky environment where we don't yet know how to measure quality very well. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it, it's not evidence of incompetence that each of those top 100 lists comes up with a different answer because whatever lens you use, you will come up with a different answer. You know, I, as I look at Medicare policy now, there are certain Medicare policies that drive me crazy like Obstatus status sure. and the SGR. But if I put myself in the seat of, of, of you know, the folks driving the Medicare bus today and say, and say to myself, what would I do in terms of a thoughtful mix of paper performance money to support computerization, money to support uh, collaboratives and the kinds of things they've done in the partnership for patients, you know, really using transparency in a way to drive performance. I'm not sure I would do very much different than what they've done. And I think one of the key things is can Medicare be a learning organization the way we want our delivery systems to sure. to, to be? And I think the answer, I'd say you'd have to say they've done a decent job. So. Certain quality measures come out and they turn out to be dumb. I mean, the, the four-hour door to antibiotic time for pneumonia turned out to just be a bad measure. It led people to give heart failure patients antibiotics. It took about a year and a half, two years, and they pulled the plug on it. They said, this is not working. So no, none of us can be smart enough to get this right. I do think there's a link between the computers and quality measure that we've not yet gotten. It has to be that the process of collecting these data and documenting these data is just flows from the work you do in... Creating, and taking care of patients is not a whole separate workflow, which is crazy making. And I don't think those two worlds have come together quickly enough. I, that, that's where I would really push. Thanks very much. Thanks. Thank you.
0: Another question. There's, I see a hand way in the back, Beth. <laughs> I'm coming.
2: Okay. Well, you have like x-ray vision to see that <laughs> with these lights. <laughs> Alright, Beth is fast. You can
0: you raise so. your hand again? Alright.
1: <laughs> Go for it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for a very insightful talk. That Thank was, you. Uh, that was fascinating. I, I'm wondering what your thoughts are um, about individual performance and the uh, way that public policy on graduate medical education uh, interfaces with quality.
2: Ah, boy, another terrific, <laughs> terrific question. I, you know, I think the, the the federal government is correct in saying to those of us in academia, we've sort of given you a blank check and not really scrutinized you enough on the products that you are putting out, that the clinicians that you produce with, largely with federal money, need to be part of the solution to making the system work better. I think they're well within their rights to ask those questions. <clears throat> uh, where I, you know, where, where it's problematic is there are certain federal policies that I think were, were uh, promulgated because they made sense, but. Uh, are not demonstrating themselves to be as useful as one would hope. If you look at JAMA this week, you see a couple of articles on the duty hour reductions, which of course makes all the sense in the world, but at least so far there's no good evidence that it's improving safety, and I worry very much about evidence that's much harder to come by, which is what does the surgeon who was trained in a duty hour environment, and by that I don't mean just the hours, I also mean an environment of much enhanced supervision where they may not have gotten enough chances to operate independently, what do they look like 10 years later in terms of their skill set? And so I think, it's, I think it's a good environment and that the questions need to be asked in a way that they previously were not. There's a risk that we're going to go too far and outrun the evidence. I, as I look at my own institution, the emphasis that we now place on teaching our students and our residents quality and safety science is much, it's 10 times better than it was 10 years ago, is actually quite comforting. They are really good at it. They are enthusiastic about it. As I said in the beginning with our students, they think it's weird that we didn't used to do this. So I'm pretty hopeful about the way this is going to go, but I think the feds have to be careful, and so does ACGME, about running too fast and well beyond the evidence and the risk of unanticipated consequences. And the one I worry about the most actually is not the hours. It really is that mix of autonomy and oversight. By the time we graduate a resident in medicine or surgery, OBGYN, they have to be capable of independent practice. And that means we have to give given them the opportunity to practice independently, making sure they don't kill anybody, but making sure that they can do that because we're certifying that they're good to go. Thank you.
0: Um, another question, looking for That's Beth. Uh, yeah, there you are. Whoops. Thank Ooh. you very
1: much. And somebody uh,
0: else there. Okay, right. She's in the back, the and then we'll back. come to you. Just Thank have you. a few I minutes left. I believe that go
1: many ahead. of the. Uh, changes that we desire, the quality changes, will have to occur on the local level. What are other countries doing on the local level that we need to uh, learn from here?
2: Yeah, I, I think that's probably right, and I think that people are recognizing that in healthcare as well, that we're just so big and diverse a country, and the politics are so screwy that, that, that there has to be a lot of what happens that's local, regional, state-based, and I think we're beginning to see that, and there are, I won't name any examples because you can all think of examples. Uh, where that's happening. I mean the ones that come to mind quickly are things that are happening in Minnesota and Wisconsin and some things in California, Massachusetts and, and other places. Um, I mean, you've heard examples at this conference already about some of the things that happened, for example, in, in Sweden, uh, where I think that, that, that saying that communities need to come together, particularly as we think more about population health and that perspective than just about the hospital. Communities need to come together and think about how to make change happen The reason that's so attractive now is that when we move the perspective to population health, well, it's no longer just about the healthcare delivery system, it's about your education system, it's about the public health system, it's about the prison system, it's about all sorts of stuff that i think communities are in a better position to grapple with than the healthcare system narrowly defined thinking about our tools talk yesterday as well thinking about the dying system and the aging system it's not we've medicalized the problem and that's part of the reason that we've screwed things up so badly it's not just a medical problem and communities will deal with that better than the medical system will
0: thank you i think we you know, have Beth, time for one more one question. last person this uh, gentleman right this here gentleman. thank you
4: Great, thank you, Robert. It's really an excellent talk. Thank and, you. Uh, I want to come to the issue of a personal accountability, which you touched on. And I, yeah. I've done a lot of investigations looking at human factors, both in medical incidents and also the aviation world, where I spent 30 years. And what, what I found is that you need to delve deeply. Except in the instance where someone acts egregiously or intends to harm someone, the behavior of doctors and nurses who or who commit errors, if you will, if you look into them, you find that there are personal pressures, financial pressures, task saturation pressures, incredibly, it's a incredibly confounded environment. It's, it's like calculus. And most people don't intend to hurt anyone or to make errors, but there are things that determine our behavior. So when I look at a system view, or the system you talked about, for me, the system includes understanding those factors that underlie the capabilities of an individual to make choices and decisions. Yeah. And accountability includes that complexity.
2: Yeah. No, I, I would just endorse that. I, I don't have much to say on top of that. I think it's extraordinarily important and I think there is a risk. There was a risk that we went so far in the direction of systems that we forgot about the importance of individual excellence and accountability there is a probably a greater risk that we will shift too far back in the idea of uh, in the finger pointing direction that would be absolutely horrible i do think we have to understand the human predicament and understand that there are times where it is the system that led to the individual not performing in the way we'd like I just, When I see a 60% hand hygiene rate in an organization that has done what it needs to do, at least as far as we understand today, to make this better, there is a level of accountability of someone saying, I'm just going to choose not to do this. And I think, we, I think when we say that that's a system and that there is no consequence for the individual, I think we lose all of our credibility to the public, and the public will quite naturally say, we cannot trust you people to self-regulate which is the definition of a profession, and I think things then get worse. So I think there's a balance that we've got to get right, but I think your cautionary notes are absolutely appropriate. I appreciate them.
0: Great. Well, thank you all, and
2: it was my
1: pleasure to be part of this. Thank you. informative and well-thought hour, and we appreciate all the Thank information you. that you've shared with us and look forward to hearing from you again, and your book will be out in the first April. quarter of April, yeah. April of 2015, so look forward to it. Uh, gentlemen, uh, ladies and gentlemen, please join me in thanking Madge Kaplan for that excellent facilitation, and of course, Dr. Robert Walker for his very informative session.
0: You've just been listening to a special edition podcast brought to you by WIHI, an online audio talk show produced by the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. I'm WIHI's host and producer, Madge Kaplan, as well as IHI's Director of Communications. We hope you enjoyed Dr. Robert Wachter's remarks. They were recorded live on December 10, 2014 at IHI's 26th Annual National Forum on Quality Improvement in Healthcare. Dr. Walker's presentation slides and a short video he played can be found on IHI.org. If you have any questions, email info at IHI.org. I'm Madge Kaplan. Thank you for listening.